The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. Hello there and welcome to our weekly podcast. This is a compilation of our best interviews from the last five days, all in one place. On Monday's show, the three-day weekend, Margaret Cox on the rising popularity of the working practice since the pandemic. The life and legacy of Ernest Shackleton, his granddaughter Alexandra, spoke to me about a new documentary on the polar explorer, Shackleton's Cabin. Rising star Patrick Martins, currently starring in An Octoroon at the Abbey, joined me in studio. I spoke to smooth operator surgeon Aileen Rogers about life on the cutting edge. And on Friday's show, one Dublin woman who up sticks and put down tent poles in pursuit of an off-grid lifestyle in the US. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. It's Monday morning and Sunday night, for whatever reason, can give people the Glen Rose, you know, where you just think, oh, God, even though it's just another day in the week, even though it's just what you might call temporal happenstance, even though somebody somewhere decided that time was a thing and hours were a thing and days were such a thing. But actually, for whatever reason, spiritually, culturally, socially and mentally, psychologically and sometimes physically, we just get something into the system on a Sunday night. But not so for our guest this morning, Margaret Cox. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? It's really good to talk to you. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of your idea pretty quickly, if you don't mind, because... No problem. It's Monday. A lot of your staff aren't in work today. Why not? So if you're an ICE group, what you uh, do is you work four days a week, you do your job in those four days, and you have a three-day weekend. So lots of our staff are off Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or they're off Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And essentially it means that we have changed their lives. They get the same pay. They do the same work as they would have done in five days, in four, because we've changed our practices and our culture. Oh. And um, they have more time to spend at home with their families, with their friends, with their community, um, with people that they love and people who love them. It, we just change lives. That's what we do. OK, OK. This is this is intriguing. Uh, let's go back a few steps then. You, you're co- what does your company do? So ICE Group is um, a recruitment and training company. We're based in Galway. We have offices in Limerick and Sligo, okay. uh, sub-office in Sydney. And um, that's what we, we, you know, we hire people for jobs. We train people for jobs. Um, we make a difference to the companies that they start to work in. We make a difference for the people who get the jobs. So okay. All, and we're in business 50 years. So all of that time we've been changing the lives of the people who we've worked with. So at what point in recent years did you turn around and say, we need to do something. The five-day week is, you know, people seem to be down in the dumps or they're working too hard or there's something not right about the the mood in the camp, if you like. What what happened? Yeah, so myself and Fella McDonnell um, are my co-director and indeed my husband. Yes. Um, yeah, just to get that in. Um, <laughs> important, I know. <laughs> important detail, um, Margaret, yeah. Just a tiny detail, but, um, you know, we've been um, driving the business forward. We were looking at where we were going in the four years, 2020 to 2024. Mm. And we knew as an organisation what we wanted to do, our vision was to be a world-class organisation that inspired other organisations. And that was a big ask. And we realised, well, we've got to do something big here. And the big thing that we need to do is we've looked after our our, uh, clients. We've looked after the people, as I mentioned, that we place in jobs, etc., 
but we needed to do something for the people who worked for us. So in May of 2019, we announced to the company that we were going to move to a four-day week work pattern. Everybody would keep their same wage. And all that we asked in return as an organisation and from the team is that we would get the same output. Um, and the idea behind that was uh, less is more. We can, you know, change the way that we do things and people have more time. So there's a better balance in everybody's life. And we were the first company in Ireland. We had, you know, researched the idea. We were seeing it coming from New Zealand. Uh, a gentleman called Andrew Barnes had introduced it in New Zealand. But we were the first in Ireland. And today, I mean, when we announced it to the company, you can mm. imagine there's 50 odd people in the room. And we made a big deal about making this announcement. It had been kept under wraps for about two months when we were getting ready for it. And it was absolute silence. Stunned silence Why? for about 60 seconds. Because everybody thought it was a candid camera. They thought it was a joke. <laughs> Nobody had thought that it was possible in Ireland, a company like ours um, in the west of Ireland could bring in this initiative and they would have a three-day weekend every single weekend wow. of the year. I'm kind of excited thinking about that as, an, as, a, as, yeah. a, as a prospect because you've got the, the fact that you said to them, okay, you're all going to be paid the same. And they probably thought they were going to take a hit financially or what yeah. have you. And that you were saying, no, you're going to be paid the exact same, so that's going to be fine. So what's the, what's the, 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 the deal, though, in terms of the four days they do work? Is, was there a sort of a tweak on that in terms of hours or lunch hour or what have you? Yeah, they, they, um, we shortened the lunch hours. Um, you know, people got to take a half-hour lunch. They didn't need the full-hour lunch. You know, we, we operate in a business park, so people were either able to bring in their own sandwiches or go out and grab something quick or whatever. And our, the four days we work went to a slightly longer day, and we started at eight and finished at half-five, um, uh, but didn't work on Fridays or Mondays at all, depending on your work pattern. Because... Again, look, we're a business, um, Ryan, and all of the people who work with us know we're a business. We've got to look after our clients. If we don't, it won't work. And So sorry, go on, we go on. have to provide that service. Well, we have to provide the service the five days a week. So that's why it's a split weekend. You take your Friday to Sunday or your Saturday to Monday, whichever and, suits you. And if somebody says, Margaret, can I make my weekend like uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and, and Wednesday? So we've decided um, that we needed to do what we're calling, and we've invented a whole new language around this, but we wanted to have a model of fixed flexibility. So you either do the Friday, Saturday and Sunday, or you do the Saturday, Sunday and Monday. We can't do it in the middle, unless there's a specific reason. So for instance, one of our wonderful people, Brianna, our HR manager, she went back to college in Limerick to do her master's in HR. So college is on on a Tuesday. So for the two years that she's doing her master's part-time, as well as being a mom and having three small kids and mm. looking after our HR in the wonderful business that we have, she's going to college and she's swapped her genius day, which is what we call our day off, she's swapped her genius day to a Tuesday. So there is some flexibility yeah. for certain, but we believe the three-day weekend, Ryan, is the key to the success in our business. What? Because, go on. What, what, what sort of things are people saying to you in terms of what if this is done to enhance their, like on a practical level and a human yeah. and emotional level what are people what's the feedback what feedback are you getting 
So um, Tom, who's our marketing uh, manager, Tom went back to college as well and uh, he tells us that he went from a, a 2-2 master. He had done a master's before and he was coming out at 2-2. When he went back and he did his master's last year, he became a 1-1 student right. because he was able to put the time into it. Um, we have another wonderful person, Tracy, who's one of our um, top salespeople in our Pitman training division. And Tracy never was able to bring her kids to school because she had to leave work or had to leave home too early to get into work. So the four-day week meant for her that on her Friday, she brings the kids to school. And she tells us a story about the first Friday that she went to the school gates with Sophia, her daughter. And Sophia was so excited to go around and introduce her to yeah. all her friends. This is my mom. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the, the treasures that you can do, the things that happen. It's so exciting. Um, you know, you get all your chores done on your spare day, whatever mm, day that is. And true. then you have two days to yourself. Um, it changes your life. It's really, really fantastic. And I say that as somebody who would have always been described by my friends and my family as she doesn't know how to stop working. Um, but I have to say a three-day weekend every weekend and knowing that you're going to have it gives you an opportunity to actually look at your life and decide what's really, really important. And Margaret, um, are you taking the three-day weekend? Are you practising what you preach? Mostly I am. There are occasions because in fairness, here's the really interesting thing. Our business has expanded exponentially. So there are times when I don't get every single weekend um, and for my favourite clients and they know who they are, um, they'll say to me, oh, can you talk to me on Monday? And I go, Oh, of course I can talk to you on Monday. But in general, Ryan, yes, I get the three-day weekend. And I what, really, because it's important. And your personal benefit from it as, as the boss? Oh, well, I go swimming. I start... Okay. Thank, you know what? I love COVID. God forgive me for saying that. <laughs> but the pandemic changed my life in terms of... I go sea swimming now. Yes. Um, you know... The whole way that we went around Ireland on our holidays when we had to staycation, you know, everything was about getting to a beach. Um, oh, where's the nearest beach so we can go for a swim and then yeah. we can continue on our travels? It's absolutely amazing. Um, I get to spend more time with my family, with my mother, um, with my kids, um, who are all grown up now. They probably forget that I ever tried to spend time with them. But, you know, I mean, I did. Um, so it's it's great. Um, for the business owners um, what listening this morning, um, so I'm sure a lot of staff listening this morning will be going, this is a great idea. It would be good for my mental health. It would be good for um, the firm, for, for everyone. But for the business owners might be going, oh, don't be, don't be, don't be encouraging this now, Margaret, because it, it might affect profitability and, um, yeah. and output and so forth. Has your, the, the, this whole idea of a three-day three day weekend been counterproductive or very productive or extra? Has it given you more? It's given us more in so many okay. ways. Our productivity has increased. Our profitability has increased. But the key measure for us as an organisation is our employee wellness. It's gone up by 33% since we started right, this. So that's we're a leap. almost three years into it now. Um, and it's amazing. But 27% increase in productivity. Um, you know, it's certainly not something to be laughed at. And with that, everybody's still working four days and having a three-day weekend. Um, but you've got to think about what you're doing. It doesn't just happen. No, you can't think that, okay, you know, we're going to start introducing a three-day weekend. You've got to plan it. You've got to have the people in your organisation work with you because they've got to identify how they're going to do their job 
in the four days because you've got to sustain it so that everybody continues to get their five days wages. That's the important thing, mm. that it's sustainable and successful for both this, the staff and the employees as well as the people who run and own the business and the clients. Like, let's not forget the clients because they keep all of our businesses going. Um, let's take some text. Margaret, uh, great idea to have a four-day week. Uh, well done on this. Another from uh, Joan and Mayo says, it's a great initiative. This is life-changing in uh, with many people's personal and family lifestyles. Great for um, mum guilt and the Sunday evening fear. Uh, Mary Hearn says, lovely to hear Margaret Cox with this wonderful idea of the four-day week. She was always a leader and investor. Well done. Uh, another says, but, but, but. They still have to go back to work after three days. That's worse than going back after two days. Now they're going to need a four-day weekend to get over the three days. Okay, well, that's a, a domino gag. And Gillian says, Margaret is some woman for one woman. What an amazing idea. Really pro-family life. I met her in the sea yesterday. <laughs> there you go. You're obviously... <laughs> Margaret, it's, it's, it's quite the initiative. And um, I know that uh, there's, it, it's, not the, it's not the last we're going to be hearing about it because there's, there's plans to maybe get it into companies around the country soon. That's right. There's um, a national campaign. Um, it's a pilot study for Four Day Week Ireland and there are 17 wonderful companies who are actually trialling it at the moment. A company called Stillwater, um, mm. a company called Yala that I'm working with and uh, Neve Brendan Credit Union in Lockray. So um, companies who have introduced it are mentoring these um, companies to try and help them through the process. Uh, the government has invested um, money in research to try and see is there learnings from that that can be rolled out across the business community. And um, there's a, a trial going on in um, in Ireland. There's one going on in the United States. There's one going on in the uh, United Kingdom. Um, I'm actually doing a, a documentary with the Japanese. The, the RTE of, Japanese, of Japan is coming to visit us on Wednesday oh, to learn from us and, and what we're doing. And, and I saw an email in my inbox this morning. I have to check and see whether it's right or not. I put from Korea um, and the Korean national TV want to talk about it as well. So, look, it's a trend that's happening around the world. We're very proud that we were first in Ireland. We want to help other organisations learn from that. And that's what we're trying to do because it's such an important initiative. It's been over 100 years since we've changed the work, if you like, the workplace and the working week since Henry Ford introduced um, the five and a half day uh, work week. So it's it's really, really important, Ryan. Yeah. And if people can imagine it and the, imagine the change that it would make to their lives, their communities and whatever, it would become, you know, the way forward. Yeah. And we've changed technology. Um, you know, technology has changed our lives, but why not share the benefits? It, doesn't, it shouldn't just make us work faster and harder all the time. It should give us a chance to sort of take a little bit back into the lives of people. And, and the importance of that is, um, is, is really, really important. All right, Margaret, uh, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Wish you well and um, good luck with the whole project. Good to talk to you. Take it easy. That's uh, Margaret Cox joining us from Galway this morning on, on, uh, and you can go to the three-day weekend. That's three, number three. The three-day weekend.ie to, to, to learn more about how the three-day weekend worked and works for Margaret Cox's company. Um, and I know a lot of people, um, certainly on text, slightly unsurprisingly, f fully in agreement with this idea of a three-day uh, weekend. And, you know, as she was, as Margaret was alluding to there, the... Five-day week was introduced in the 19th century and we're now well into the 21st century and sometimes we have to evolve in, in ways and that certainly seems 
uh, like one way of, of uh, evolving and uh, the, the workplace experience. It's 12, 11 minutes to 10. I might have mentioned to you uh, some time ago on a trip to Connemara that I had the chance to see a, a glimpse of a, a remarkable restoration project in Letterfrack. And this was restoring the cabin of Ernest Shackleton, what was referred to as his sea bedroom. And uh, this was where he took his final breath on his final voyage in 1922. So that cabin has quite a story. We're going to get into it now with uh, no one better to talk to about this such a thing. The granddaughter of Ernest Shackleton, Alexandra Shackleton, who's joining us in studio this morning. What a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming in. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. What is it like having that as a second name when you talk to somebody who knows their thing, knows their history? Well, it's always nice to talk to someone who knows the history. Occasionally, I encounter somebody who asks for cosy stories about my grandfather. And I think I'm not that old because he died in 1922. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the name is, is unusual. Mm. And um, I was at the Shackleton Museum in Athai in Kildare last summer. Yes. It's a beautiful statue outside, great exhibition. They're going to treat it even more perfectly in the due course. But... When you see a statue, for example, of your grandfather like that and you see, let's dwell on the Irish heritage for a moment, um, is that special to you? It's very, very special and there's a wonderful statue which I helped unveil and I've been coming to the Ernest Shackleton Autumn School for the past, I think, 22 years. How does it feel to have to carry the legacy of your grandfather with you and to tell stories about him? Is that a source of great pride or do you find it sometimes a burden? I, f I find it a privilege, really, and I'm very lucky that, obviously, the more... I, when I talk formally lectures, I do them by heart, with no notes and with jokes. OK. <laughs> and I prefer talking to adults, so I do talk to children, because I can't tell children my best joke. I, they, I'm sure they'd understand it, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> what is your best joke? I'm not going to tell you. I, I've only just met you. <laughs> OK. It's like that, is it? OK, let's talk about... Can we talk about the cabin for a moment? Yes. Because it's it's central to a documentary I want to discuss in due course, but it was on board the Quest. Yes. And it ended up in Norway. If you could give us as much as you know about the provenance of it and uh, what this cabin is. Well, the cabin is my, my, for my grandfather's last ship, Quest, which, as you said, he died 100 years ago this year. And I last saw it when it was on its own, an open-air museum in Norway. After lots of tribulations, it came here to a very good place. It'll be at the, uh, the Ernest Shackleton Museum, which will be the first dedicated museum in the world. OK, so how did the cabin end up in Norway and find its way back in Ireland. It's a long, complicated story, and I don't know all of it myself, I'm afraid. OK. But uh, as, as you know, Ernest was very young when he died. He was only 47. And the last entry in his diary, when they just got to South Georgia, he said, in the glimmering twilight, a lone star hovers gem-like above the bay. A few minutes later, he was dead. People see that diary in exhibitions, they find it quite emotional. Well, it would be because, of course, um, as you say, he shortly was to die, I think, of a heart attack. Yes, yeah. very, uh, very shortly, yeah. And I suppose returning to the cabin, that's where he would have written that bit of the diary. Absolutely. That's where he would have unfortunately passed yes, away. Yes, yes. Um, and you made yourself, you found yourself in the cabin as restored in yes. letter frack. Was that a, a special moment for you? It was a very special because when I visited Norway, it was really just a shell of a cabin, and they've done it so well. The, the conservator, fantastically impressive. And I came over a few months ago to do the film, and they, I think a drone took part in the interview. I wouldn't say the drone was actually interviewing me, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to let people know that the man who owned the ship at the time. 
transported this cabin from the ship to a farm in Norway. And that man's grandson played in the cabin as a child. It was like a shed in the back garden, if you like. And eventually a cork man called Eugene Furlong went to Norway, heard about the, the cabin, tracked down this grandson who eventually has loaned it to museums and so on and agreed to donate the cabin to Ireland where it has been restored by Sven Haberman who features strongly in this documentary uh, that you feature in also, Alexandra. And now it finds its way in a strange way back uh, home to Ireland in some regards. What better place? When you went to the cabin and you sat there, you would have seen that they talked about this lovely moment with the banjo and a crew member called Hussey. Can you talk yes. to me a little bit about that? Well, the, the banjo, the story of the banjo, when the ship was was obviously going to sink and, and stay sunk, as it were. Yes. My grandfather told everyone they could bring just two pounds of weight because so much you carry on the sledges and eventually in other little boats themselves. Hussey thought that he would have to leave the banjo behind because it weighed much more than two pounds. But my grandfather said, no, we'll keep it, this vital mental medicine. And so it proved. Though I, they, I think people got a bit tired of Hussey's six tune. <laughs> he had six songs on yeah. it. Let's take a little uh, flavour of that from the documentary. The night Shackleton died, as I came off watch, passing his cabin, he called out to me, he said, Huss, I can't sleep. Play me some of the old tunes, will you? They always help me to sleep. So I played him a lullaby. I thought that was very, very moving. Yes. It was. It was lovely. And when you hear the banjo playing that lovely Brahms mm. lullaby, you think, mm. what, 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 that's possibly the last thing your mm. grandfather, Ernest Shackleton, possibly, heard. Possibly. Let's talk a bit about his extraordinary career, if you don't mind, Alexandra. The endurance is the expedition most people uh, will recall. When you talk in, in your lectures and to people about endurance, what do you find people are most struck by? I think they're struck by the fact he brought everybody from the Weddell Sea side of the party, because there were two parties, the Weddell Sea party and the Ross Sea, home alive. Yeah. When it became apparent that the ship, after living for months on the ice, that they were ne- the ship was never going to take them home, my grandfather wrote, a man must set himself to a new mark, directly the old one goes, and his new marks to bring every member of the expedition home alive, which he did. That marked him out as somebody who was not so much reckless, rather he was somebody who had leadership qualities that remain kind of unparalleled. He's still, in the modern era, seen as somebody that you should aspire to be like as a business leader. Uh, Absolutely. His first expedition, Nimrod, that was the name of the ship, Mm -hmm. he and his companions got within 97 miles of South Pole. They would have been the first. But he knew that though they could have got there, they'd be very unlikely to have been strong enough to get back to the ship. So he took a decision which is regarded as one of the great decisions of polar history, one I'm very proud of. He took the decision to turn back, turn his back on possible glory for the sake of life. We're all defined by our priorities. It's quite clear that his priority was his men. Remarkable, because he also, speaking of his men, his wife Emily, Mm. your grandmother, didn't he say to her, I thought you'd rather have... Uh, A live donkey than a dead lion. A live donkey rather than a dead lion. After each expedition, he told her he wouldn't go again. But I think she realised, final expedition, she she wrote, I realise you cannot cage an eagle in a barnyard. 
Because he was a restless eagle. And he was white south. He was happiest in his white south. He loved his family, but his white south is where he felt most at home. And, of course, in that era, it was so much more dangerous, not, not only because of the clothing and the food, which by all sounds pretty inadequate, but because there were no communications whatsoever. But he did say once, my grandfather, to one of his little sisters, you cannot think what it is like to tread where no one has trodden before. I think that that quote sums yeah. up yes. his passion, his raison d'etre in some ways, because he simply wanted to yes. walk on virgin territory and terra incognita, they probably call it, or yeah. incognita. Yeah. You'd mentioned the Nimrod there. I want to share with our listeners the sound of your grandfather speaking because mm. I think that really brings them into the yes. room with us. So let's uh, have a listen to Ernest Shackleton talking about this experience. We reached the point within 97 geographical miles of the South Pole. The only thing that stopped us from reaching the actual point was the lack of 50 pounds of food. That's the voice of the man himself and... It is, but one of my sons explained to me that uh, it, it probably didn't, wasn't quite like that. You know, it's a long time ago, well over 100 years, and yeah. his voice was maybe not... He doesn't sound remotely Irish, does he? And he, at school he was called Mick and Paddy. Yeah, that's often the way for, yeah. for Irish yeah. people who uh, even the modern age who would have an education here and be born here, but when they go to the UK they're considered very other, yes. very, very Irish. Uh, indeed, yes. Let me ask you a little bit about the endurance now because we talked at, at some length on this programme a few weeks ago when they found the ship at the bottom of the sea. Yes. How did you react to that news? Astonishment, really, because we've all seen, it's most, of us, most of us have seen the, the footage of the ships crashing to bits under, and going under the ice. But the Weddell, and she's, everyone knew she was Titanic depth, 3,000 metres, far too deep for human beings. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought, a lot of people thought she would just be a pile of spars, but the little wood-eating creepy, because the ship was wood, doesn't live there. And the ship looks so wonderful and beautiful and shiny because apparently a useful jellyfish lives there. A jellyfish likes, eat, likes eating algae, and so it kept the ship clean. Isn't that remarkable? But I never thought there'd be so much left of her. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so intact. Yeah. You know she belongs to me, the ship. I'd like you to, to tell us about that. Well, well Grandfather insured the, the, the ship, and so when it crashed, it inverted the insurance companies. And the, it was discussed with the insurance companies, and they handed over their interest to myself and my first cousin. She's also protected under the Antarctic Treaty as a site of special historic value. So you are the co-owner with your cousin yes. of the endurance, the yes. shipwreck. And I did make it clear to people who might or might not be looking that I've got absolutely no problem people looking or photographing, but I'm not going to allow anyone to rummage. Explain that to me. Well, not no touching, in fact. She should be left just as she was. Looking, yes. Touching, no. But would you be upset if people went in to look for uh, artefacts? They can't, legally. Both my, my, myself and the Antarctic Treaty. In fact, the expedition uh, acknowledged what I said about no rummaging. My return almost said, no, we're not going to touch, we're going to look. And is part of you not curious to know, like you want, you might want to see plates or a pair of cufflinks or something connected to I your grandfather? I never wanted to see plates and cufflinks. No, you know what I mean. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I know you mean. There could be more important things, but no, but no you feel it just <laughs> Even leave Even if it. I did, I still think it's right she's left as, as she is. In That's... fact, several people said they'd rather... She, prefer never to be discovered, sort of inviolate, you know. This is intriguing, Alexandra, because you clearly feel that this is 
more than just a shipwreck, yes. if you like. Well, the most important thing about people who know nothing about the story, unlike you who know a lot, is that no, no one does, she's not a war grave, no one's dead in her. Yes. And there wouldn't be an awful lot of things left in her anyway. But no, I think she's, I like to think of her as she, um, uh, such a wonderful shock to see her like that. But we know quite a lot about the interior. There are a lot of, a lot of photographs of the interior of Endurance, yeah. yes. You sound protective, and as yes. you would be. You're, his, you're Sharon Shackles and granddaughter, for goodness sake. But you do sound quite protective of, yes. of the ship as almost like a, a keeper of the story. Yes, I, I've never regarded myself as a keeper of the flame or anything like that because it sounds very arrogant, but flame doesn't need to be kept. I mean, the interest in Shackleton just building and building and building the last few years. And if, for instance, a country I've never visited... A town I've barely heard of puts in an exhibition I know nothing about, invites me over. Well, I haven't generated that. It comes to me. Yeah. I, I'm going to take you up on being the keeper of the story. I think as somebody who loves history, as you do, mm. um, we need people like you, family representatives of stories like this, to make sure people don't go to places they shouldn't go out of some sort of uh, greed or uh, Indeed. Un- unnecessary trip. Well, I, as I said, uh, as we know, I didn't know him. But uh, speaking about him, I've now spoken in 16 countries. Wow. Yes. I, I learn more and more. And I haven't found I don't think he was perfect. I think he was a very great man. Some people, if they're related to somebody well-known, think behave as they're a saint. He wasn't a saint. He was a very great man and a very great leader. I'm very proud of things that like, he wrote poetry. The yeah. only Antarctic explorer who wrote poetry. But he was also an incredibly practical man who could do any job on an expedition, however menial. A hundred years ago, that was very unusual. He, he, all, all, everyone shared the jobs, officers and men equally. Yes. And you might think that his practical qualities would be sort of... Um, Men sort of affected by his romantic qualities. But I think, thinking about it, they made a stronger whole. The, the restlessness. I'd like to talk about that yes. for a second. And the, I'm trying to be as delicate as possible, the patience your grandmother probably had to show on occasion because the point would be that most explorers are not good at, at staying in one place for too long. By definition, you could say, yes. Yeah, by definition. And Yes, but I think she knew him very well. Obviously, she hoped he wouldn't go exploring again, but but he did. I mean, you have you can't... Apparently, I found domesticity not really his thing, you know. Yes. But he tried all sorts of things. He tried, even um, stood for Parliament once, and he said, I got all the laughs, but my opponent got all the votes, you know. <laughs> I don't think it would have suited him to be an MP, but yeah. uh, he, he, wrote, he wrote, as they wrote poetry, he wrote couple of very, very good... He wrote uh, the story of the Nimrod expedition, Heart of the Antarctic, and, and South, which was endurance. He was very busy. He loved, he loved words. I was very heartened by the fact that his uh, cabin had bookshelves in it, yes. uh, laden down with books, and that he encouraged the crew to read as well. Uh, so I loved that he brought the words with him on, on, on the tour. Absolutely. And as I say, as I said earlier, it was unprecedented that... Um, any, any, anyone of the expedition would do any job. And when they were living in tents on the ice, he, he personally decided who would be in which tent. He didn't put the officers in one mm. set and the men in the others would be normal. He balanced the personalities because he knew their personalities. Mm. He knew them. And, when, and when they were living for four months on the ice, there was harmony because he balanced them. And that was, in a way, even more striking than it might sound when you first hear it, because there was a huge educational gap in that era between the officers and the men. Some of the men were actually superstitious. One wouldn't originally eat penguins because he said everyone knows penguins contain the souls of dead sailors, you know. 
Right, so he had to contend with all of this. Yes. Um, but he was what we would call, I'm not sure that expression was around at his time, a very emotionally intelligent man. Clearly. Yes, but he took it for granted. Yes, that's... Uh, and when they were living on the ice, above all, he inculcated in his, his men the knowledge. Not only he expect them to be loyal to him, but he would be loyal to them and he expect them to be loyal to each other and their expedition as a whole. He's buried in South Georgia. Yes. You've been there? Several times. What's it like there? Oh, incredibly beautiful island, wonderful. The tradition is for people to go to his grave and drink a libation of whiskey and pour it onto the grave. And did you and partake? Yes. And he dies facing south, you know. That, yeah. You don't usually the south in the graveyard, yeah. It's incredibly beautiful. It's, my, my, my grandmother showed how well she knew him because he was going to come back to England. But South Georgia, the scene of his greatest triumphs, the James Kerr boat journey, of course, and the trek over the mountains, it's right that he lies there. Your grandmother, was. she was left with a bit of debt. Three, three children. And a, a, yes. few, a few bob to pay off yes. and all the rest of it. Uh, how did she get on in life after? She, man- she, was, she was a guide commissioner. She managed... Yes, yeah. and she eventually had some money from her family, from her family's her father's estate. But, but, and people had different. I mean, separation, all that. It was more usual in those days. People okay. took that for granted. But one, one of the things that must have been very alarming about being re- married to a pro explorer in those days, in fact, you might never hear from him again and never know what happened because, of course, no communications. And can I ask you about your own background, yes. Alexandra? What did you? What have you been doing in your in your life? And did, I'm just curious: Did you follow history? Did you follow writing? Did you? What? Well, I, I read history at Trinity College Dublin. Ah, there you go. Yes, Ireland's always meant a lot to me. In fact, I think I've got more cousins over here than I have in England. <laughs> and yes. did you do anything with the, your history apart? I from did so the National Book League and Ministry of Defence, that sort of thing. And then I got married to a GP in the era when you had to be at home to answer the phone, you know, <laughs> sort of thing, and. Um, Yes, eventually I came to live to London where I am now and this whole thing just goes on, the Shackleton story, it yes. really gains momentum. A few years ago there were, I was delighted it was going to be a Shackleton stamp, but there were six, it just goes on. The Royal Geographical Society just put a magnificent Shackleton exhibition. I'm going to have to insist you go and see it. You know, in South Kensington. I would love to go and there. And just beside it, in the, high in the wall, is a magnificent statue of Shackleton. And it's only been open since middle of February, over 8,000 people have seen it. Well, I might nearly ask if I could call you up and, yes, and absolutely. You, you might join me on you've the... Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got to the 4th of May. But if you run out of time, I've just opened a sister exhibition in Cornwall. Oh, OK. Well, I could double down and do this, both. This, yeah, you could. I'd love that. You're in Dublin because you're going to see a special screening of Shackleton's Cabin, which is a delightful documentary. You're going to love it. I'm sure I'm going to love it. I'm very impressed by the people involved. Delighted to hear that. The documentary airs on Monday, May the 2nd at 6.30 on RT1. It is a treat for people and I'll tell you about that uh, closer to the time as well. Ale- Alexandra Shackleton, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for your time. Pleasure to meet you. All right. The text number is always 51551. 9.26, I want to welcome Patrick Martins to studio. Patrick, nice to meet you. Good morning. Nice to meet you. What a pleasure. What yeah, a pleasure. Likewise, likewise. And Thank you're you. doing amazing things at the Abbey Theatre at the moment. Thank and you. Uh, the reviews are in and they're they're glowing. So we'll go there in a second. But I'd love yeah. to introduce you to the broader audience, people who mightn't have seen you on amazing. TV or on stage. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Patrick Martins. I'm 24. I'm from Swords. I'm an actor. I've been acting since I was 17. I, I started acting based on a conversation I had with my mum, you know, yeah. after leaving, sir, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And she kind of just randomly suggested I do acting, you know, one yeah. day after school. And I haven't looked back since then, you know, it's been a pleasure. It's been and here we are now here in we the, are. the Abbey Theatre, treading are. the boards. I want you to talk to me about your mother. 
Great. And I'll tell you why, because reading about you, I get the sense that she is a very, very important person in your life. She's she's honestly like Tell me rock. all about her. Yeah, she's great. She's great. I mean, like she's taken care of four kids her whole life by herself. You know, we came here when I was five and she has worked like a numerous amount of jobs just to kind of make ends meet sort of thing. What's her name? Mabel. Mabel. Okay, so yeah. Mabel came here from? Nigeria. With, yeah. with how many children? With uh, with three. With yes. three, yeah. And then another one was born here. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, she's amazing, honestly. That's a big leap for somebody to come from somewhere like Nigeria yeah. to somewhere like Ireland. Uh, it's a big cultural shift and a jump. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. brave. And I think she, she found it quite tough, you know, being by herself. But she's done such an amazing job in raising, you know, four kids. And we've all turned out okay. So, You've all yeah, turned, yeah. so you, you mentioned she did a few jobs. If you don't mind me concentrating your mum for a second. Yeah, I work just, away, yeah. To me, her, her story reminds me of, you know, Irish people sometimes went away and had to work and work and work to, to achieve for as, not, as much for themselves the next generation. Absolutely. And so your mum did different jobs. What was she doing to, to, to make ends meet? As in, she, she used to work in spa for a long time. Like, yeah, she worked in spa, our local spa. Um, she worked, she works currently now as a social care worker. She was also going to school, you know, trying to, you know, get educate. Better, educate as well. You know, there would be times where she'd wake up, wake up us in the morning, you know, drop us to school, make our lunches, go to work, come back, pick us up, make our dinner, go back to work again, you know, so. What a work ethic. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's where I got a lot of mine from, from her. You're you know, looking up and saying, looking okay, up to her, leading yeah. from the top. Yeah, and everything I'm doing right now is just kind of pay back and make her proud and, you know, yeah. What a nice thing <laughs> yeah. to say. Um, you've got, uh, tell me about your siblings then. How old are they? Yeah, so I've got three siblings. I've got um, my brother, my two brothers, um, Phil and Obi, yeah. and uh, my sister, Peace. Phil is 23, Obi is 19, and my sister is 22. 20, 22 soon, actually. 22 soon. Not yeah. quite yet. Not quite yet. Yeah, she's yeah, nearly yeah, there. Yeah. And did you say her name was Peace? Yeah, she's a singer. She's a fantastic. Is she? Yeah, she's an amazing, is she amazing Peace singer. Martins? Is that, Peace Martins, yeah. What a great name. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she was yeah. born to be a singer. I know, right? Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. Like I can yeah. see the album cover already. Probably. Yeah, yeah, she's going to do big things. She's doing great. She has an Instagram page where she posts some music there, and she's, she's fantastic. I'll check yeah. it out later, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And then yeah. the other, how are the other brothers getting on? What are they up to? Yeah, yeah. So my brother, he's in, co my two brothers, they're both in college. Um, my younger brother, he's an amateur boxer, you know. So, yeah, yeah I'm, it's getting to the stage now where, like, I, I, can't, I can't beat him up the way I used to anymore. You're, yeah, you're a big lad. Yeah, yeah. He's, like. he's about my height. Like, we're all, we're all about 6'2", all, about all of us, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so And then in college and everything, you've taken your mother's medicine. You're, you're all bettering yourselves. Absolutely, you're, you're achieving yeah. and, and yeah. going for it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Let's go back to what you said a, a bit earlier on. You, you, you were coming to that crossroads. A lot of young people hit at 17, 18. They've got the CAO forms. They've got their whole lives yeah. ahead of them. Yeah. What, when you were at that fork, Patrick, what were you thinking? What, what did you want or did you know at that point? I, I had no clue what I wanted. I was actually thinking along the lines of sports science because I was, only, I was always quite athletic as a child, yeah. you know, as a kid. I played a lot of sports. Um, but I, I, I didn't feel quite right, you know, and I came home one day and I was during just before we sat the, the leaving, sir, and yeah. I remember saying to my mum, like, I haven't a clue and I was having this mental breakdown, like, you know, what am I going to do for yeah. the rest of my life? It's a, hard, it's a hard time. Yeah, absolutely. And she just kind of suggested, like, you know, well, why don't you try acting? And I said, mm -hmm. why? And she says, because you're always making people laugh in school. And I says, don't you mean a comedian then? And she says, no, you're not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> so stick with the acting. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, she, Mabel, yeah, that's a real Irish mammy. Thing, yeah, yeah, saying. yeah. So yeah, she's yeah. really yeah. gone full tilt there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she took the mickey out of you yeah. uh, while also encouraging you beautifully to follow your dream exactly and I, yeah. and I and I didn't at first I was like what 
acting because I'd never done any, I had no history acting None. at all. Like, And I didn't tell any of my friends for a very long time, you know, because I was- Why not? Because, you know, in, in school I was, I, was, I was a bit of a messer, you see. So I, 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 wanted, to be, I wanted to fit in, you know, as, as a lot of, you know, 17 <laughs> year olds do, yeah. want to fit in. So I kept it to myself. I think I, think I told maybe like one or two. Um, so it's been a surprise to a lot of people now yeah. that like, you know, um, that I'm doing this, especially with the shows that I'm doing now and stuff like that. It's been, I think it's a surprise to a lot of people. I'm getting a lot of really nice messages, you know, across Live the board. Here. Yeah. And, and when you got it, where did you go to what acting school? Yeah, or how so I spoke to my guidance counsellor in, in school, in Fingal Community College in sorts. And she kind of suggested, I went to, I did a PLC course yeah. in Liberty's College, Bulali. And then from there, I went on to the Lear Academy. Great. Um, and I was there for three years, went there from 2016 to 2019. And here we are here today. Here we are today. And today we're talking, we're really talking about this play that, that, you're, that you're wowing the audiences in, in at the Abbey. It's called The Octoroon. And, you know, a lot of people won't have seen it. So um, if you could give me the, 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 the quick pressy of what, what, what we're dealing with as a play here. Yeah, it's called An Octoroon. It's an adaptation of the Irish playwright um, Dion Busico, his play The Octoroon. And it's an it's it's by it's an adaptation by a black American playwright called Brendan Jacobs Jenkins, and it's almost like a critique on Dion's play, you know, on racism and uh, and race, and it's a very funny and thoughtful piece. And we've just had such a very great such a great time, you yes. know, without giving too much away, you know. Yeah, yeah but the, there, time, there yeah. are challenges in it for you, Patrick, as as a black Irish man. Yeah. There are challenges in it for an audience uh, as well. There are challenges uh, in, in terms of okay. Well, let, first of all, you come out for the first ten minutes in a in a pair of briefs <laughs> yeah. and, and nothing else. Nothing else. Yeah. And as one yeah. of the lads upstairs, Jack, who went to see the play the other evening, said, "Um, this guy doesn't have a six pack. He has an eight pack." No. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know you could buy an eight Yeah, my brother literally said that to me Did yesterday. He, really? he says, he says, do you know what? You actually have, I was like, what? Nah. <laughs> so how much time do you spend in the gym, Patrick? I, do you know what? It's Come, don't <laughs> tell me that. This whole thing. You're joking me. Do you know what? During this, we, we've been re- rehearsing for about seven weeks and it's going to sound, people are not going to believe, but, but I've, only, I've only been about like three times in the past seven weeks. I just naturally have really good jeans <laughs> you know I've been going to the gym since I was 17 so I think okay. you know, you've earned it you've yeah, earned it yeah, 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 it's not yeah. like you're just born that <laughs> yeah. way yeah, okay. that's in itself very exposing I mean that respectfully yeah. that you come out and you're standing on the stage going here I am um, and then other things happen where you see one actor dons what's called red face to play a Native American an Asian actor dons black face and then you paint your face white talk to me about confronting that the first time you realised you had to do it. And was it a big emotional, philosophical moment and, and a challenge for you? Or was it just showbiz? Do you know what? It, it, was, it, it was quite challenging. When we first, you know, encountered this play and we read it, you know, during the read-through, we found it, you know, immensely funny. Like, we really found it so funny, but we also found it quite dark and quite challenging because a lot of issues within the play that we have to challenge and deal with. And in terms of, you know, the, the white face for me, I was, you know, at first I was a bit kind of concerned as to how it would be received, you know, to an audience. But I think, um, you know, we have taken care of each other so well that mm-hmm. we have kind of created a safety net within the cast and within, you know, everyone who's involved in it, that 
what we're doing is we're doing we're sending the right message with with this play and everyone feels so safe to work with each other and yeah. you know to kind of you know tackle these issues because they they are very you know hard and you know very difficult to talk about sometimes you know it's a satire also yeah. I mean yeah, you're, you're, you're doing yeah. this to you're you're doing the white face and they're doing the red face and to kind of make a point is that is not it really? exactly it's, yeah it's not like you're you're trying to offend anyone anyway. no one hundred percent not and I, and I and I think the audience have received that quite well you know yes. which is really good which is what I was hoping for personally do you think when you think of I was talking to Annie Mack the DJ on Friday night last on the Late Late Show and she was saying that she heard very few female voices on the radio when she was starting out and it made it a little harder for her but when she heard one. It made it easier for her to be more ambitious. You know where I'm going with this now. I know, yeah. For yeah, you yeah, as yeah, a yeah. black Irishman, you wouldn't do. Do you see much representation on TV in Ireland now? Do mind like internationally? I think it's it's probably a bit better, but you can tell me that. And therefore, how do you feel about your future and what you want to do and your ambition? I think it's changing now, which is good. It's changing now. Growing up when I started and when I was 17, I. I didn't see a lot, you know, and I and I think that's why I didn't really see acting as a career at first. Really, was it? Was yeah. it, it was prohibitive. Because yeah, you yeah, saw yeah, so yeah. Little, yeah. Because I, especially here in Ireland, I didn't see it as a career. Um, I always thought like you know I had to go abroad yeah. to like, London or wherever. Like, and I spoke to some of my you know other black Irish actor friends who have gone away, and they kind of felt the same thing. Um, but. I think it's so important now for, you know, young people of colour here in Ireland to kind of get that representation. I think that's why I'm so happy to be involved in this play. And there's so many other black Irish actors like, you know, who are also involved in that movement, you know, in that yeah. change. And so we can encourage, you know, younger people of colour to kind of, you know, view the arts, acting, you know, directing, photography, whatever it may be in the industry as a real career, um, a potential career and pr profession, you know, so here in this country. It's, it's, yeah. Do you think it's, it's evolving? We're not there yet, would you say? No, I don't yeah. think we're there yet, but I think it's evolving and it's, and, it, and it's things like this are going to continue to help, you know, make that movement, you know, and, and to change things, you know. When you were performing last night in the Abbey, was your mother, was Mabel there last yeah, night? Yeah, she was. And you knew she was going to be there, obviously. Knew, yeah, yeah. Did that make it harder for you or did it make it easier for you? Did you feel there was this warm glow looking up or did you feel that your toughest critic was in the audience? Right? It's it's funny because I, once, I, once I clock where they are in the audience, <laughs> I tend to not... Yeah, looked in that area yeah, 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 yeah. and it's good. Some, sometimes I like to play with, if I see my friends, or whatever. I like to play with them, like because there is a lot of talking to the audience, you know. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes I do, especially with my family. I tend to like you know look away, look elsewhere, you know, so I'm not piercing I'm, them in the eyes or whatever. I know. I, yeah. I, I'm laughing because you know, on the late later, not too long ago, my own mother was in. You know, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she doesn't. Rarely would she ever come on. Yeah. Or come into the audience, and but just that particular evening, I said. And she was there. And, and again, I'd look up and she'd be waving. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting there. Going, yeah. You know what? I love you, but like, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. waving time now. You know? I did make eye contact with her last did night. And, and she just had the biggest grin on her face. <laughs> and that in itself kind of threw me off as well. <laughs> but... But you were proud, I presume. Yeah, absolutely not. What did she say to you afterwards, having she, seen you? She really, really, really wow. enjoyed it. Like, you know, and it's the first time where she's been to the Abbey Theatre before. Because, again, like, a lot of my, like, my siblings, they have never been to the Abbey before. Because Why do you think that is? I think it's because, you know, they haven't really felt, you know, that it's a place for them. That, you know, that they haven't felt that you know, what, what's being put on there is for them. And, and, and I guess I understand that because I would have felt that same way, you know. Um, is, but, that, is that theatre broadly, uh, I suppose? I'm not being Abbey-specific, yeah. but do you think that sometimes theatre feels for <laughs> other you know, people? Though, yeah, yeah. I, and 
I, can, I guess it's not just not even just in terms of like you know race, but also I oh, personally yeah, no, I feel I, like even in terms of like you know sort of like class. Or oh, that's yeah. I agree with you. That yeah. wasn't a race related question. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just some some people just feel it's not for me. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I exactly. and I and I think that's what it is. I think yeah. it, you know sometimes I I feel like it actually has less to do with race in 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 a sense. Yeah. I, I guess some people just don't see as theater as for them. You know, they kind of look at it like like this kind of like you know like old, the opera or the opera or an old or, version of acting yeah. like you know and that's, at least that's how my my siblings kind of view it. But but last night, you know, they kind of really felt, they were like, oh, so this is what you're doing? Yeah. This is actually pretty, my, my youngest brother, who's 19. Yeah. Tough, un- tough audience, right? Yeah, 19. but he, really tough yeah. audience, but yeah. he came up to me, he's like, that was brilliant. He understood everything. Like, you know, he really had a great night. And I think that made me very happy. Like the younger yeah. people, my, a, young, a younger person really enjoying and understanding theatre, you know. That's a kick, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. a good kick. It's absolutely. real. Absolutely, yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, yeah. And the rest of this family enjoyed the, the whole experience. 100%, okay. yeah, really enjoyed it. I noticed it. in your Instagram this morning, somebody asked you a question, um, you know, where would you like to go or where do you like to be? And you said Sweden. And I just finished a book by a Swedish crime thriller called The Lonely Ones by Hacken. Nasser. And I found, it, you know, it's got, it got a flavour of Sweden and I kind of thought, right, I'd like to, I'm waiting to go to Iceland but first and then, but maybe Sweden. Why did you say Sweden? I, I don't know what it is. Everyone always asks me, I just love Sweden. Sweden. I first, you, you've been, obviously. I, I've been quite a few times. I first, I first went to Sweden in 2020, just before the lockdown. And uh, I went for a friend's birthday. We went for four days. And I just fell in love Did with the you? place. Yeah. And during during the lockdown I started learning Swedish on Duolingo. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was it? The geography? Was it the people? Was it the uh, It was the, the geography, food it or? was the people and it was just everything about it that I lo- I loved. Like and, and I just really wanted to learn a language, you see. So I just I was like, you know what, Sweden's Swedish. the place. You know, I'm gonna start, try learning Swedish. And it's funny, there's there's a woman um um who's working on costume in in, in, the, in Abbey, the Abbey and she's half Swedish. So we have conversations Amazing. in Swedish sometimes, yeah. And yeah. what part of Sweden did you go to that first time? So that first time I went to Gothenburg. So that's on the West Lovely, Coast. Apparently, well, it reads beautifully in the book I was reading. Yeah, there, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've I've been to Malmo. I've been to Stockholm. I've even been to the north of Sweden as well. Um, is Uppsala in Sweden? Uppsala is yeah. in Sweden. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's all. I part think of I've it. kind of passed through Uppsala okay. now. Yeah, and yeah. Love it there, love it there. I, I really would love to kind of live there for a brief moment. Isn't it? I, I don't know why I'm so, you know, flabbergasted by that, <laughs> but, but I can see why, you know, I went to that film, uh, The Northman, and that was all Iceland. And, but just something about those countries have, yeah. they seem very special. Have you been before? You I've need, never been to Sweden. You need to go. I need, need to, to go. Get, yeah, You're yeah, selling yeah. it to me. I'm <laughs> You're like the Swedish tourist board. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready for Sweden. Okay, let me take some text messages coming yeah. in. I'm chatting with my guest Patrick Martins this morning. Patrick is the great big star of the show here at the Abbey Theatre in a play called An Octoroon, which is a take on The Octoroon. Great name. It comes from somebody who is one, one eighth black. One eighth black. One eighth black. Octoroon. Yeah. Octoroon yeah. Could you ask your lovely guest, Maeve asks, uh, how my son, age 14, living in rural Ireland, could go about acting? What should he be doing? He's very interested and we're not going to rain on his parade. Well, it's funny. I get, I just get this question quite a lot, actually. Um, I feel like there are many ways you can encounter, encounter acting and I think best way I can say is to kind of go to like a drama school or like, you know, try, you know, short courses. You know, I think there are some available to kids, you know, whether it's screen or acting, you know, there are some short courses that you can find. And, you know, those are really quite helpful into kind of like finding a passageway into acting. That's a great idea because if in this case, the the young lad decides after 
six weeks or yeah. four. It's not for me. Yeah. He's gone and he's not committed to a year. So short course, that's great yeah. advice. Yeah. Patrick says the text has a part in the confessions of Frankie Langton uh, playing uh, Laddie. Yeah. Uh, somebody telling you what you do. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, well done. Tell Patrick he has a super mother, a lovely guy. Best of luck to him from Liam in Dublin. And uh, so Mabel getting the love today as well. Thank you Go so honor. much. Thank you. Yeah. Please tell Patrick he sounds like an amazing young man. Fair play to him. Inspiring for young people coming up. So that's, that's nice so to nice. hear that. Thanks. Jenny was on to say, I went to see an actoroon, an actoroon on Friday night. An amazing performance. Totally different to anything I've ever seen. Really thought provoking. The cast are amazing. I can't believe your guest is not American. His accent is flawless. Let's talk about that because wow. again, <laughs> I was watching scenes from it. And uh, you come out and you you give this monologue and you know as as Jenny says a flawless American accent. Yeah. I'm always amazed by how how good actors are like you that can chameleonize and 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 do that. Where do you go for that, or what do you do? Watch or listen or practice or how's it work? There was a lot of listening and watching. I think first of all, that's always one of my favorite compliments to receive. You know that my accent is flawless more oh, than great. anything else. I love. Is that. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I think I did a lot of um, you know listening to like, for example, like Bill Clinton or something like that because I, because I play I play two white characters in in the play, so I kind of wanted to find like kind of like a, a starting point, so to speak. So Clinton then, is is Arkansas. It's southern. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. I believe I know what I'm talking about. Absolutely, so that, that, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Was yeah. One, and who else were you thinking of? Um, I guess I just I, with with one of my other characters, I always just had an idea of how like the kind of like this the deep kind of southern yeah. American accent, you know. Um, but I guess I've, I just watch a lot of TV, and I've, yeah. I always kind of like you know during training we 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 had immense kind of intense classes on like you know voice and accent work. Right. So that really helped, you know. So those accents were always quite available for me for from the get go. So there weren't really a stretch to kind of Wasn't get to. Wasn't a stretch. Well, yeah. congratulations, thank you, man, you, you, you nailed that. I've been, the Gaiety School of Acting were on to say that they have a lot of camps in acting for kids over the summer. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, P.S. Patrick, uh, our students loved an octroon. You're an inspiration to them. So wow. this is great because wow. you're not long out of the school system yourself, as you said at the beginning of the interview. You're twenty twenty four. Um, so to be an inspiration at that age to, to young people who are could be 17, 18, 19 already that's a good start yeah, uh, lovely absolutely. chats about mother's pride between Patrick and Ryan and puts a smile on my face as a single mum listening in this morning that's oh, listen, great listen whether you're a single mum or any class of mum you, 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 you don't be surprised at the love a son will have but if it's an Irish son it, it, they mightn't be as quick to tell you how much they love you. <laughs> uh, well done from Liberty's College. Uh, from Jackie, the guidance counsellor, is on to say. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. That's what, amazing. What does that mean? It's just like Liberty's College will always have a place in my heart because it's the place I first went to as an actor. Like, as a kid, 17, yeah. hadn't a clue. It was the place like, I kind of fell in love with acting. So that okay. will always mean something to me. So I really appreciate that comment. coming yeah. back to you now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, Patrick, we got to leave it here. But uh, before I go, let me ask you one more question yeah. about the future. Because, you know, the last... We've had a lot of people in, in, in here of, uh, of your age group, twenty between 20 and, and 30, thereabouts. And they've often talked about manifestation yeah, and writing yeah. down what they want to do and where they want to be. And weirdly, nearly everything they write down on the list has come true. And I was chatting to them here. Do you have such a list as a matter of interest or is it just in the head? I do. I, I do. Well, Is it physically written down or? I actually do have it written down, okay. actually, yeah. I guess with, with, with the, well, I have two shows, one, one out already, Redemption on ITV, and then I have another one coming yes. out of Franny Lank. Confessions of Fanny Langton coming out later on in the year. Great, so you're on um, the you're on the march. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
And I think those are kind of goals I had while I was in college. So those are kind of, you know, coming through. Okay. You know, but as of now, I do have, you know, aspirations to kind of like have a career here in Ireland, but also go beyond. Of course. You know, go beyond and kind of like, I would love to go to like Hollywood in the future and, and work in like, you know, these big kind of Hollywood movies. Those are just like, you know, childhood kind of dreams and aspirations I had and those still kind of like are still there so yeah I'm quite ambitious as a person Good. you know I'm quite ambitious and I think that's just part of me and, and it really kind of helps me you know drive towards and it motivates me yeah big I, dreams I, I love to hear you know young Irish person like you not being afraid to say I'm ambitious that is yeah. a generational shift because when I was young if you said you're ambitious you were considered a cocky, arrogant, and irritating. Sometimes some things never change. But yeah. if, yeah, yeah. when you're young, <laughs> when you're young, yeah. I hope that it's like when you, you know when I give it a compliment to people your age, my own girls or whatever, you would say you look great or I love that coat or whatever, rather than going no, I only got it for fifty p. When they say thank you, I go that's more like it. Yeah. Take the compliment. So. That's what I say to you. I, you so I would much. love nothing more than to be interviewing you with your BAFTA or your Emmy or your Oscar or whatever in a few years. I'd love to be back here. 100%. Yeah, I would not yeah. be lovely. Yeah, yeah. We'll play this clip and yeah. say, I believe in you, Patrick. <laughs> and actually, I do. I really do. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed your company pleasure. immensely. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, thank and you. thank you. And Octoroon is in the Abbey Theatre until the 14th of May. It's doing great business and I'm hoping to get along myself in due course. But Patrick Martin's rising star of the future. Great to see you and best you to so Mabel much. and your family at home. Thank you so much. And sir. I'm sure I'll meet her someday too. So yeah. uh, good luck with it all. Keep shining. Cheers. Thank right. you. It's Thank uh, you. 11 minutes to 10. Our guest this morning, who has been working in medicine for over 15 years, intriguing story. Aileen Rogers, good morning and thanks for being with us Morning, today. Ryan. Thanks for the invite. I think I'm going to start with you as I started with another guest earlier on in the week. I spoke to him about his mother, but I'm going to talk to you about your grandmother because I get the sense that your grandmother, the Roscommon lady, That's right. uh, was yeah. kind of instrumental in terms of the forks in the road and decisions being made. Tell me a little bit about her. Yeah, so I guess I come from a long line of strong women, but I was the youngest uh, of five and I only actually had one grandparent alive by the time I came around, which was Anne Gilhooley, my mother's mother, mm-hmm. who I spent a lot of time with down in Roscommon. But she, when she was in her late 80s, kind of developed dementia. And so uh, the family made a decision when I was about 11 for her to move in with us at home. Mm-hmm. And my parents cared for her for seven years. So she, she lived until she was 97. And she went kind of from being nearly minding me to uh, very much me and my parents minding her at the end of her life. So it was, I think it was actually a formative period for me because that was when I realised I wanted to become a doctor, I think. It consolidated that idea in my head. That sense of minding and nurturing and and looking after. She sounds like a special lady. What did she bring to your life? She was a really interesting person. She had a really interesting life. She, in the 1920s, up and left Roscommon and went to Montauk to be a governess. Montauk? And send, yeah, and Holy send smoke. money home. And she, I think she had a fantastic time out in New York. Oh, and then wow. I'm sure she ha- lived the life during the 20s. And uh, she came home to marry my grandfather and had, you know, a wonderful family and just really instilled a love of entertaining and f- like t- close-knit family yeah. and, and that has really resonated for Joie me. Comes, yeah, exactly. Ex- and my parents really um, have, have followed on along that line. She was a wonderful cook and one of my brothers is involved in restaurants and, and uses her restra- recipes in his uh, restaurants in London and stuff. So. I always think that if you, when you meet people of, of that vintage in their 80s and 90s in Ireland who have spent some of their formative time in the States, yeah. they, had, they, they brought something back with them. 
Absolutely. Do you, do you know what I mean? They packed it in a bag and then put it in their soul. I think she was always known as being the most glamorous woman in yeah, Oregna yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from 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 the 1920s onwards. So, you know, okay. she always had a hat and she always had stuff being sent over from America. So, yeah, it's really... I like that. And yeah. and you said you come from a, a, a line of strong women. Would you would you tell, tell me about some of them? Or Yeah, well, my, my father's mother as well was university educated and back in County Sligo. Not and that common at the time. No, it yeah. wouldn't have been. And her, her her name was Constance, actually, and my middle name is Constance. Is it? Um, Sligo? So, yeah. So you got kind of Yates vibe going on there? Very much, yeah, very much. And Markovitz. Uh, uh, yeah, we're very, yeah. And so, yeah, so the, the Rogers of Sligo um, are, are a strong line down there. And yeah, um, yeah so my, my grandmother... Um, would have uh, my both grandparents would have really instilled education as being the most important thing, um, and so you know th- that kind of again led through to um, something that my parents uh, really put everything on the line to make sure that we kind of were educated and worked hard. And yeah. so I think that I suppose that's you know part of where I am, where I am today. It's is, the story is to do with that. I spoke. I speak to you know on the late late last Friday. I spoke to these to the guys, the two Naris, and they came from very difficult background ended up in prison drugs the whole lot but it was education was the the route out and you know talking to other people this week as well it's always about the education regardless of the your background if you can fight through what you're given and if if you come from a difficult background but equally if you're come from a more comfortable background if you can just Grab that educational um, possibility and and roll with it. And work hard. And work hard. That's the thing. Why do you say that? (laughs) I suppose that's that. It's more it's more that aspect of things. I think that has probably helped me in my career, you know, um, being a surgeon and uh, a mother and a wife and, you know, being able to kind of maintain, you know, a family life and a f- and social life and being able to you know do what I do you have to work hard and work long and you know constantly be thinking of your next move right so well that's I, that let's <clears throat> let's go let's go there now because <laughs> you 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 decided to enter the world of medicine we talked yeah. about your grandmother and and that formative nature of of your experience together i'm always interested to know why doctors or medical people chose the field that they chose so tell me a little bit about that where where were you airing towards or what was what was on the mind it's kind of a f- it was a funny one, but um, I actually wanted to do neurology and I have, there's a... a um, I think I, I might know where you're going here. Yeah, Go well, I, well, I won't mention names, but no, there's a okay. very prominent neurologist. My brother, Neil, yes, yes yeah. Was very formative in my career. And in I a good actually, way, I hope. Oh, I'm, I'm mad about him. Okay. Uh, he still teases me constantly about uh, <laughs> the fact that I've ended up literally at the exact opposite end of the spectrum <laughs> as a colorectal surgeon. Um, okay. So Neil was, um, I was always inspired by... You know, I, I I would all I'm a, le- a follower of people who are inspirational, and I you know wanted to be a neurologist all throughout university and felt that that was the direction I was going to go and worked and did research in it and chose to do that particular intern job. Mm. So when I graduated, you know, was was heading towards neurology, and I actually chose to do surgery first in my intern year because I thought even though it was my best subject in college, I just didn't kind of. Even it it wasn't a conscious disregard for mm. it, but I just didn't consciously even consider it as a career choice. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of days uh, of being a surgeon on one of the old um, firms in Vincent's, which was called the Highland Trainer Firm, and, and uh, Professor Highland and Professor Trainer were very formative in my um, 
subsequent decision to become a surgeon. But within a couple of days, I ended up doing an appendectomy on the fourth day of my intern year due to lack of staffing or something along those lines. And uh, and there was a, a female surgeon who happened to be one of the registrars. And I just kind of stepped back and thought, oh, my God, what am I thinking? I like instant gratification. Yeah. I buy a new pair of shoes. I want to put them on straight away. I love surgery. This is me, it's, you know... That's fascinating that, that it's instant gratification. So rather than the, the kind of more laborious uh, analysis of what might or might not happen, yeah. you're like, get in, incise, yeah. stitch, get out. Exactly, yeah, it's decisive. You make your decision and then you fix it and you yeah. look at what you have done. You can actually see it in front of you. It's the medical equivalent of doing live radio, live, radio, live TV. You walk away from this, you can't you could do it again or re-record it or, yeah. or, or pick up an edit. You're just in and you're, or you're out. Yeah. You know, you exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. Exactly, yeah. And it suits me down to the ground. So I'm delighted. Let me go back a step, Aileen, in, in that story you've just told where you saw a female surgeon and, and um, you know, I was talking to, and again, I'm, I seem to be quoting a lot of people I've had on the show in the last week, but that's because I'm, I'm learning. Of course. I, um, you know, Annie Mack, the DJ, BBC DJ, was on with us and she talked about hearing female voices on the radio and that made her think, oh, I can do it now. So if you hear it, you can be it. If you can yeah. see it, you can be it. Yeah. And this is a classic example of that then in your case. It really is. You know, like that is a kind of an adage, isn't it, Maya Angelou or somebody said, if you, can, you can't be what you can't see. Well, that's well put, yeah. Uh, and um, and I mean, I think, I, th- I was trying to think about this, but I think up until certainly when I started medical school in 2001, I don't think there was a general surgeon in Ireland who was female. Right. Uh, and now you look around and there's more of us. Uh, and, you know, it's not it's not about it's not necessarily about actually having to promote women or whatever it is. It's actually just looking and seeing somebody that's like you doing something. And it's just a visceral thing. It's just about being human, isn't it? You, you know, you relate to people that you look and sound like or who act like you or, you know, I'm that's the other thing. I'm OK, I'm a woman, but I'm also four foot eleven. So I'm not particularly physical looking. I'm also look younger than I am. So, I mean, you know, I think... Are you conscious of that, the physicality of the... I think I used to be when I was maybe a teenager. And I think definitely, you know, I have a big personality and I've probably developed that from, you know, the fact that I was always small and probably, you know, that that did contribute yeah. to, to who I am. Do you find, I, I'm going to share it with you here yeah. so we can, as we're talking, you know, people say, someone said to me the other day, coming out of the shop, oh, here he comes, <clears throat> um, what do they call it, uh, Twiggy, here comes Twiggy, you know, skinny. <laughs> and, and I really? laughed and said, that's yeah. fair, enough. I don't take too, too. but uh, equally, you said you're small. Uh, do you find people will casually pass comment on your height and have oh, done yeah. since you were a younger age. Yeah, all and the how, time. And how are you with that? I, well, you know, I actually am quite past remarkable myself, so I don't really have a leg to stand on. So you give on. as good as you get. Yeah, that, and I've, I think I've developed that. And I, I love a bit of banter and, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> totally okay with it. And so it's no holes barred when it comes to me. And I think people feel comfortable to be able to do that. And if somebody commented on... Go on. I stand on a step in the operating theatre. Do you? Mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there I know there are some short surgeons who insist on bringing the bed down to their height <laughs> and then the tall people have to come down. But I'm not like that. I'll stand on two steps if I need to. Uh, so we've got like a specially higher step for me in the matter because I need the extra size and I have my glove size is much smaller than everyone else as well and I have to have my own box of gloves um, because I just am a smaller person. But you're so good at what you do these things are utterly irrelevant. Totally. Um, you, what matters is what you do with those hands not the size of the gloves. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and sometimes actually it comes in handy having very small hands. <laughs> Given the nature of the job. Yeah. So as a surgeon Aileen, can I ask you what you do? I mean, if that's not too silly a yeah, question, yeah. you know, would we get into more specifics then? Sure. 
So I've trained as a colorectal, which is bowel cancer or bowel um, surgery. And and I do specialize mostly in cancer. You know, it's been a long road of training. And the way we do it is that you get to a point where you're, you know, able to kind of do anything that really comes through the door with respect to bowel surgery. And that's when you kind of come to completion of your training. And then you do one extra year, which is a fellowship year. So that's what I did where I went to London the year before last. And I trained in robotic uh, surgery for bowel cancer and also in something called pelvic exenteration, which is basically really advanced colorectal cancers where they go beyond where cancer normally goes. So there's a small group of people that will have really advanced colon cancers and that's the kind of stuff that I do. Are you mesmerised by technology? Are you scared by technology? Are you encouraged by technology? Oh, no, I I love it. Um, So, I mean, from the kind of technology side of things, I love all the guns and the robots and all that. Do you? Yeah. Like your gadget kind of person. Yeah, yeah. but I'm also one of those people who will always be an early adopter, you know, so there's different sort of people. And so, you know, when you show me something new, I'm always interested in it and working out how to use it and innovate. Whereas, and maybe that's a reflection of the fact that I'm early in my career. And maybe, you know, when I'm later in my career, I might yeah. become one of those people who's stuck in my, you know. Stuck, stuck in your robotic ways. Stuck in my robotic ways, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or who doesn't want to maybe change. But okay. I, I suspect that I will always be an early adopter. Um, let's talk about London for a minute. So you said last year, that you said we were deep in the heart of darkness in uh, yes. pandemic land. You were, what, commuting? Were you, that, that's Kind of. So, um, yeah, my wonderful husband and four-year-old and... 10 month old at the time Mm. baby Uh, I left them in August 2020 just after the first wave to go for 12 months to the Royal Marsden Hospital in London to train in robotic surgery so this was planned three years prior three or four years prior obviously when I planned it I didn't know that Covid was going to happen and I thought you know I'd be able to come back Fridays fly over Mondays that's easy well you know, easy enough. Um, but with the pandemic, obviously everything changed. So, I mean, I left I left on a flight, you know, in August 2020 with a little bag on my back and I had no idea when I was going to get back, you okay. know, kissing the kids goodbye. I just didn't know. Yeah, um, that was because, a tough call, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, it was difficult. Um, but I, I did get back and I, mm. there were certain times where there was dispensations for cross-border health care workers. So it was easier when the UK variant came in. It was awful. You know, there was several long weeks um, where I didn't see the baby once and you know that was tough and my husband really held the fort up and is is fantastic and a great dad and and obviously was able to kind of we we were it's a testament to him that I was able to stay there for 12 whole months um, and complete my fellowship Well congratulations on that Uh, on all those levels to to talk about I love the way that you blend in your your personal ambition with your professional ambition you know you want both to be you know, right up there. I get yeah. the sense from, from in our brief uh, conversation so far. Yeah. And when you were over in London, you were doing robotic surgery, you were practicing with the machinery. And did you find that strangely with COVID and with that in mind, the kind of falling off of staff around the place, you, you might have been more immersed in it than you might have been in the non-pandemic era. Yeah, well, that and as well as the fact that like I had a split life. So when I was in London, it was work, work, work. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I was, I had no distractions. But yeah, I worked in a cancer hospital in London called the Marsden. And what ended up happening was that um, it was shielded actually uh, from COVID. So really, COVID didn't actually affect oh, me. Oh, you were in a bubble of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, th- I think we had maybe four case cancellations in the 12 months out right. of over 400, you know, that I was involved in because the patients were so rigorously tested and it was all planned and there's no emergency department in yes. the hospital, etc. COVID affected me 
probably positively in terms of yeah. professionally because there were other fellows who would usually come from international countries didn't come because their visas didn't come through or they felt it wasn't safe to travel. Whereas for me coming from Ireland, it was that little bit easier with the common travel agreement. Mm. Um, plus, um, a lot of the cancers were centralised into my hospital. So the volume was bigger than than um, I actually expected. So it actually ended up being the best professional year of my career, I think. Um, right. So it was fantastic. The three surgeries that I believe, open surgery, keyhole surgery, robotic surgery, that's yeah. right, they're the three. I'm not going to ask your favourite because it's a bizarre and kind of macabre question. I couldn't answer that. Uh, no, I'm sure. I them all. Do you, do you, well, <laughs> yeah. right. Well, that wasn't, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, but you do. You, I mean, you what? You relish the challenge? Is it like, because um, I know you mentioned my brother that I always feel he, he reminds me a little of, of Sherlock, you know. That <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the he's mystery searching. he wants. Yeah, yeah, he's searching constantly yeah. trying to find answers to these questions. And is that what you find? That it's the constant mystery of it uh, as much as the... Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you go into it, so scans are brilliant and we kind have a very good idea of what we're going into but the surgery that I tend to do is outside of the normal planes of things so you know it's it's kind of not a straightforward operation so you go in and you think you know what you're going to find but it's like doing a jigsaw or you know it's a puzzle right Uh, so I love the challenge of that and so that that satiates my desire for a challenge um, and then at the end of it is so nice you know you have the gratification of having you know looking at your work but yeah the, so there's a role I suppose you have to tailor surgery to the patient and to the tumour that you're dealing with so if it's a big massive bulky tumour mm. you know there's no point in doing a robotic operation because the, the whole point of doing a robotic operation is have nice, nice neat little scars and okay. if, you, if you have to take out a tumour that's the size of a football mm you know, you may as well do an open surgery because it is it is open surgery is probably the best in, in a lot of so ways. You, you, as you say, you tailor it to the job exactly. at hand. Yeah, exactly. And so the challenge is knowing how to tailor it. And I think one of the problems with robotic surgery from the understanding of the lay public is I think people think it's like your Roomba that goes around and, you know, hoovers your house for you and, and you know, you just press yeah. play and off it goes. Yeah. And that's not how robotic surgery works at all. So um, it's very much the surgeon making the decisions and making the cuts. It's just that the robotic aspect of it miniaturizes it. Do you have? Do you find yourselves yourself and and indeed your colleagues uh, standing at at the table at the, in the surgery for mm. many many hours? I mean, yeah. we, we talk about double figures. Yeah, at, in, yeah. One, in one sitting. If my, you'll excuse it, one I standing. think my I think my record of not taking a break is a, I did a, a seventeen hour one um, in one go. Yeah, yeah. Somebody passed me a square of chocolate under my mask at You're one kidding. point. <laughs> Did you just slip out to the for a coffee no, break or a toilet no, break? No, no. 17 hours. Yeah, I think that's my record. But uh, yeah. What were you doing without giving anything away? Uh, that was actually, I think, a long vascular operation. That was during training. So a good few years ago, but it's just one I remember. But you know, like you wouldn't you wouldn't let somebody drive a truck for <laughs> 17 hours, but let alone operate on somebody. Well, you, but you say that, but you know, uh, yeah. And but you is, tell me. It's I mean, unique. I, it's, it's, so it is a, it's a totally unique. I mean, I don't know if you can legislate for uh, for this sort of thing when you're you have ownership over it and you're the consultant. I mean, we you know people going down in submarines and you know there's lots of different unusual physical lifestyles that change how you can become and that you don't need a coffee break every two, so you're, it's two like hours. A, it's almost a you Darwinian evolution yeah. of certain people have to like it's like duck bills that are different well, than some I think, ducks and well I, I just know you that different stamina yeah it, you train because I mean you start yeah. as an intern and then your operations that you're involved in kind of get longer and longer and longer and sure enough suddenly you realise that you can actually go 12-15 hours without you know thinking of anything <laughs> other than what you're doing in front of you 
you. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But, I, you know, when you're kind of obsessed with it, yes. which I am, um, you know, I think a lot of your listeners, anyone who's got, you know, a passion or something else, you know, if you whether it's a jigsaw or gardening, you can suddenly look at the watch and go, oh my God, where do those six yeah. hours go? I, I haven't even when eaten. When, yeah. you're, when you're having a surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In your case, at least. Exactly. It's, it's Colorectal Awareness Month this That's month, right. I understand. That's um, right. Would you like to share a little um, information? Yeah, it's Bowel Cancer Awareness Month in April. So, you know, obviously that's the, the um, specialty I work in. And I think hopefully a lot of your listeners would know that if there was any um, change in symptoms, a change in bowel habit, weight loss, um, or if they were feeling, you know, unwell, yes. um, to, to seek help. But... The other message that I think we really want to get out there is that with colon cancer, the treatment is so good uh, that nowadays, even if you've got advanced or stage four colon cancer, that we can treat it now with a curative intent. So, you know, people would usually think, oh, if you've stage four cancer, you know, that's kind of, you know, the coffin, you know, nail in the gun. But with colon cancer, the treatments have come on so much and the surgeries have come on so much. So in the matter, we're doing a lot of um, removing of um, advanced tumours and tumours that, you know, have spread elsewhere uh, uh, with an intention of cure. So what I want, I suppose, is we've had a lot of people uh, more recently and after the pandemic diagnosed with more advanced tumours. But to get the message out there that if that's you or if, you know, you're facing a diagnosis of colon cancer or colorectal cancer, that, um, you know, we're moving towards a world where we can treat more and more advanced tumours. What a positive um, piece of news to to hear that from coming from you. Um, Great discussion, uh, says a text. I recall being in college in nursing school as a man in the profession, way too few men in nursing. Mm -hmm. And if more men were nursing, more would enter. So that's that's the flip of what we were talking about earlier. Would you agree with that? Definitely, yeah. Uh, Francis, I've just had major surgery where I had my femur rebuilt. The doctor performed a work of art. You are unique people. Um, (laughs) We all are unique people. That's for sure. Uh, Fran in Dublin says, uh, loving the interview this morning regarding personal comments being passed regarding weight, etc. Great reply if someone... Refers to you being light or thin is you can't fatten a thoroughbred. If someone refers to a person being small in stature, my late mother had a great expression. There are good goods in small parcels. I've I'm sure heard you've that heard that all my yeah, life. I've, I've heard them all. <laughs> the one I yeah. get as well is there's more meat on a butcher's apron. Oh yeah. Um, I, what else? Uh, I know we could. Keep, it's like the film oh, yeah. Roxanne. <clears throat> excuse me, Roxanne about the nose. You, it's, the same, right. it's the same thing. You could, but look, that's not where we're going to end today. <laughs> I think that what's great about our conversation today, Aileen, Aileen is that. You've achieved so much uh, so early in your career um, that uh, younger people, and I think particularly younger women and and, uh, girls listening today, I hope would listen and go, yeah, that's it. You're out there. We can do it. And uh, you're you're paving the way for for the next generation in many regards. But it's been great to see you and I really enjoyed our chat this morning. And good luck on your travels. Thanks very much. Wherever they take you. That's right. (laughs) And I hope that you get to see a few shows along the way. That's right. Aileen Rogers joining us live in studio this morning. The text number is 51551. It's 14 minutes to 10. But I need to go to America straight away and say good morning to Fiona Byrne Ryan. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning, Ryan. You're in America, and that's fine, and we have much to discuss, but would you please give me uh, a little bit of your life and times in Ireland before heading across the Atlantic, please? Yes, what what exactly would you like to know? (laughs) Who you are, what you did. Oh, yep. That sort of thing. So, I guess I'm from Dublin, and I went to school there, and then I went to UCD, and I studied landscape architecture. 
Okay, that's a neat uh, assessment of it all, of all that. Now, when you study landscape architecture, <laughs> you probably have a certain uh, roadmap in life to, to take. What, 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 what would you ordinarily have done, do you think, before the, the big plan came about? Yeah, ordinarily, I guess I would have, uh, after you've graduated from landscape architecture, you have to become registered. So you would go and join uh, a firm and then become registered to be a landscape architect. Okay. You didn't do that, though. You went to America? Yes. No, I didn't do that. I spent, uh, after I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life, to be honest. Yeah. And going and sitting in an office just did not sound appealing to me whatsoever. So when, you know, we can, Irish people can go over and do the, the graduate visa. So that's what I decided to do. I decided to take a year and go over to Come over to the States for a year. Uh, you enjoyed yourself, I presume, over there and life was going fine. But I'm going to jump, leap and uh, sprint straight ahead to you meeting uh, Brandon. And tell me how you met Brandon and uh, tell us a bit about him. Yeah, so I met Brandon when I was over here on my graduate visa. Um, I had made my way to Detroit, Michigan, um, seeing as I was landscape architect well, I studied this. There was a lot of uh, there's a lot of urban farms going on in the city of Detroit. It's kind of known as a food desert. There's actually no shops, shopping centers in the city, so right. uh, people are kind of going to grow their own food. And that's where I ended up meeting Brandon. Uh, I was there for five weeks. I did. I think I had like two months left on my visa. So it was. Uh, I kind of say I went there and then I never made it home. <laughs> I see. Okay. So tell us all about Brandon. Yes. So Brandon, he is actually he's native uh, Native American. He's Mohawk tribe. Um, and yeah, so when I met him, he was actually working in uh, real estate. He has his own re- he had his own real estate company, and I started uh, I just started working with him, kind of with my design background. It kind of fit well yeah. to work together. Okay, and you started a family. And we started a family. Yes, we have a two year old son. And then let's jump to October. Uh, I think it was last October. What happened? Yeah, so last October, we we sold our house. We had a house in Detroit, and we sold most of our belongings. Um, and we decided that we were going to go live in a tent for a little while. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so we, yeah, we'd, it was kind of, it wasn't a, a very quick decision like that. I think I can go back to February of that year where we let go of our real estate business, actually. And we realized that everything that we were working towards wasn't really anything that we actually wanted, you know, the bigger house and the nicer neighborhood. Mm. And we had gotten the biggest paycheck that we had gotten with our business. And when we got that, we were just left completely unfulfilled. Like, this wasn't, is this what it's supposed to be? It just didn't feel feel right. And then jumped to July mm-hmm. <laughs> and we ended up getting a call. So we were kind of on this, search then to figure out, you know, who are we and what do we want to do with our lives? And we ended up getting a call to join um, a resistance, uh, a pipeline resistance up in northern Minnesota. So in October, we started this project called Running Into a New Earth, and we ended up running 227 miles uh, through the forest to raise money for the water protectors up here in northern Minnesota. So it's a campaign to, can you clarify that for me? It's a campaign to protect what from from who? Yeah, so it is a pipeline that goes from the tar sands up in Alberta, Canada, and then it goes through a lot of indigenous land here okay. in Minnesota. 
yeah, and it makes its way to, there's actually a pipeline that's going to connect with that will go through the Great Lakes in Michigan as well. And is your endeavour to prevent this happening or is it to raise awareness? Um, well, it did start happening just so actually the same day that we left Ireland, or not Ireland, we left Michigan. Mm. Uh, the oil did start flowing through the pipeline. But for us, it was definitely about raising awareness and just answering that call um, that, we, that we received uh, when we heard, you know, I was the leader of the Ojibwe up here. She said, we, we watched her on an online summit and she finished her segment with, the water is calling, come to northern Minnesota. And we just kind of, we answered that and raised money, which actually a lot of our, my Irish friends and family back home donated. So I'll shout out to them and thank them for all the donations. Uh, and is this to do with sacred land or historical land or just broad the broader world of ecologically sound nature? Yes, definitely all of the above. Right. Um, well, it crosses 227 bodies of water, which feed a lot of two of two of them go over the Mississippi River mm. and the Mississippi River is the largest river in America so uh, if, uh, if if the oil was to uh, burst uh, it would just be disastrous and tell me a little bit about living your your living conditions now are you off grid as you say and um, so at the moment we are not off grid actually so we spent uh, six months in the tent and we made our way back up to northern Minnesota, where we've joined uh, Winona. She's, she was the leader of that resistance, still is. And uh, we've joined, she has a, a sustainable hemp farm up here. She has horses and she's creating like an alternative to fossil fuels, an alter- alternative way where we can do, how we can do things. And does that mean you live in, are you living in a house or are you living um, in, a, in a very different existence to the rest of us? <laughs> I guess so. We're, uh, so yeah, we're out of the tent. Um, we did spend the winter, uh, three months of the winter, in a, in a tent in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which gets down to minus 20, got minus, minus 26 Celsius. And we got, I think we got like 12 feet of snow over the winter. Um, but at the moment, we're actually, we've taken over a greenhouse. So we're actually in a room that's just on the side of the greenhouse. And temperatures here are actually still quite cold. We had snow this week. So we're actually keeping a wood stove going to keep keep it nice and warm in there for the plants. And how are you sustaining your own existence in terms of, say, financials uh, as well as day-to-day? Yeah, um, so we do, uh, we actually have an online, we started an online community called Truthfully Living, where we have, like, mentorships and teaching people how to to get back to, um, get back to the land and get back to themselves. I think part of this whole journey for us of, you know, letting everything go and moving into a tent was yes to raise awareness for the pipeline, but it was more so about you know discovering what it, what it means to be a human and the earth has a spirit and I think if we're to make the right decisions for the earth moving forward, we the first place for us to start is to connect with the spirit of the earth. So we do help people on that journey. You, what would you describe as your greatest joy in the life you lead now in a given day? In a given day, I guess there's been so many different experiences mm. over the past uh, six months. But uh, I guess one of the most ah, beautiful experiences that I'd never really thought I'd ever have, and was sitting in our in our tent over the winter when, particularly when there was lots of snow, and 
we were just completely insulated around us and the, the silence was so quiet. Mm. And we'd gathered all we gathered our firewood from from the woods around us. And we were just sitting down at that fire, sun gone to sleep. And just the peace and the quiet was something that I'd never experienced. Just such such grounding really. Mm. You know the expression you know, one with nature, that's like what it sounds like you've just described. It was, yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, trees are humans have had a relationship with trees for since the beginning and I just, I'd never even thought about that before. What, what would you describe then as the, you, that's the greatest joy, what's the most challenging aspect of it all? The challenging aspect, it's immensely. And yeah. <laughs> um, when we were running and everything, of course, the, the physically and um, p- taking up our tent and moving it was, 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 that was quite a lot too, actually, moving our camp every time. But just coming face to face with conditioning you know I grew up in Dublin like I never really spent much time out in the wild and it scared me <laughs> honestly yeah. to begin with it yeah, really yeah. did the quiet yeah no I can believe that and and it's it's, it's such <laughs> such a leap um but you know it's funny as you talked about Brandon your husband is uh is uh, like a part of the, Mo- the Mohawk tribe and I often think when I think of Native America uh the Irish relationship with the Choctaw people um, and so you know, I, I think that there's a certain common ground. I don't know if you if you would if that makes sense between maybe the Irish and the Native Americans. Do you do you ever see that or talk about that? Yes. No. Actually, a hundred percent. And as you know, he's he didn't grow up connected with uh, that side of him. Okay. Um, for 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 many different reasons, it's kind of just there's a lot of shame actually uh, with the indigenous community of even being indigenous just from past you know, stuff. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And as we he started to research all of that, I was like, wow, okay, so what does it mean for me to be an Irish person? Mm. And I started reading books like from John O'Donoghue and an excellent book called Amakara, and there's so many similarities spiritually between how the Irish people used to in- interact with the land and the way the indigenous do as well. Mm. Yeah, funny, we were talking about Iceland yesterday and the folks folklore, and in in some ways, if you talk to maybe Native American or somebody with an interest in Irish uh, uh, folklore and Icelandic folklore or ancient Roman storytelling, whether it's, whether it's the, you know, the Odyssey or Greek and Roman storytelling, they're they're gen- generally speaking universal stories, but just tweaked to the land the, part, the story is being told on. Yeah, yes, definitely. And I know, like Irish people, storytelling is was is, is such an important part of who we are and that's the same over here storytelling like a lot of books are only just starting to get written now because everybody used to the stories used to get passed down and the beautiful thing about stories is they have that ability to change with the people and mm. the storytellers and that's kind of really a kind of mystical magic about storytelling so do you have um an ambition to do something now with your family um or are you living day to day? Um, definitely living day to day. But there's always we are we're we're really searching for a new story to believe in. What like what what's out there for us to to live differently? And that's why we're here at this um, sustainable hemp farm because uh, they're just there's there's a lot there's a lot to be learned from these people and what they're doing here. Um, and then. But really, plans like we don't know how long we're going to be here. I guess until something else calls us into a different direction. But we 
yeah, we're learning how to how to build community, how to build community that's rooted rooted in the earth. Okay, but so it sounds like you're 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 up for a, a rather nomadic existence. Would that be fair to say? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely mm-hmm. nomadic existence. And there's um, so Brandon's tribe is he's well originally they were from upstate New York, but the Mohawks sided with the British during the Revolutionary War, so they actually got pushed up into what's now Canada, and that's where they were granted land. Um, but we do want to go and go to his ancestral homelands. We have connections there now and uh, and, and go there and, and, and learn as well. And there's a lot of different things that are happening around America. It's kind of crazy when you when you start to learn what's happening. So I think we'll go to other other resistances around 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 this land and uh and see what we can do to help and raise money and awareness and see where see where it takes us. <laughs> All right. Can you tell everyone what um, what Turtle Island is? I think that's fascinating. Yeah, Turtle Island is what North America is known as. Um, if you actually look at it from like an aerial view, it kind of does look like a turtle. Yeah. And, and this would be in all of the different tribes around America. They all have their own creation story of where they came from. And it's all, it's all Turtle Islands. Turtle Island, that's it's intriguing. So, will you ever leave Turtle Island, maybe, and come over to this this island? Uh, definitely, oh, really? <laughs> definitely. No, Ireland, yeah, definitely. Ireland's uh, Ireland's where my heart is, and uh, we're just we're just here going down Brandon's roots right now, and um, we're definitely going to be moving back to Ireland and and going down mine when we get back home. Uh, not that we don't go home, we we still we come home quite regularly. I'm actually coming home in June for two of my best friends are getting married. Uh, a couple of weeks apart, so it's perfect timing. <laughs> okay, and you don't have you don't have any moral quibbles about getting planes and that kind of thing. That doesn't bother you too much. No, you know what? When it comes to all that type of stuff with sustainability and doing our best, we can only always do our best. Yeah. And when it comes to all that, it's it's everything in moderation, really. Like planes are a great a great uh, thing that we can use, like for say someone like me to go home to some to my friends' weddings, like. Yeah. I think you know it's it's good. There's been great advancements with the human with humans. Yeah, you're not going to get a Kirk across the Atlantic Ocean yourself and Brandon <laughs> and say you know we're 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 the most sustainable couple in in the world. I mean, there are limits, aren't there? Yes, there's there's definitely limits, and we can always just do our best. But that would definitely be something I think would be very cool because I did grow up sailing in Ireland, so okay. uh, if I could. If I could sail across, that would be <laughs> I, see it. I see it in the future. That's quite the endeavour together, the three of you on a curricle from New York to Clifton. Good luck with it. Uh, Fiona, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. And the very best to you and Brandon and your family. Thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, and I just, uh, if yeah. anybody wants to follow along on our story, we're at uh, We Are Brandon and Fiona on Instagram and, and on YouTube as well. And... Um, yeah, I just want to shout out to Lara McCann, who is doing great work, work in Ireland with Climate Love Ireland. So if anybody's interested in this, definitely check her out as well. That's great, Fiona. Thanks, I mean, appreciate that very much. Fiona Byrne Ryan joining us uh, live, as it happens, uh, from the United States this morning. And as uh, she says, her friend Lara McCann is the founder of Climate Love Ireland. That's uh, uh, what she was encouraging you to have a little look and uh, indeed at her own um, Instagram and YouTube uh, pages and things like that, uh, Fiona and Brandon. So thanks, dear. That's a quite the lifestyle choice and a, a total curveball in, in her world, but seems very content and very happy with it. Mm-hmm.